Hello, everyone. This is Volts for August 3rd, 2022. Volts Podcast, what to make of the Democrats' last-minute climate bill. I'm your host, David Roberts. As Volts listeners are no doubt aware, Senator Joe Manchin, our Lord and Savior, blessed be his name, seems to have found his way to an agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on a reconciliation bill. The 600-plus page Inflation Reduction Act would raise some taxes, reduce some drug prices, and subsidize some healthcare exchanges, but most notably, it would invest almost $370 billion into clean energy and climate change mitigation. Make no mistake, if it passes, this bill will be a very big deal. Though it has shrunk from $550 billion to $370 billion, the original climate and energy package in the House-passed Build Back Better bill is still visible in the IRA, if you squint just right. Though the Clean Electricity Payment Program, RIP, is long gone, most of the clean energy tax credits have survived amidst a sweeping variety of spending on everything from consumer heat pump rebates to a green bank to money for carbon capture and hydrogen research. Everyone, including his fellow senators and top congressional staffers, was completely taken by surprise by Manchin's pivot so perilously late in the game. There is a bit of giddiness in the clean energy world, tempered by the hard-won awareness that nothing is certain until Joe Biden signs a piece of legislation. There are still many ways this can all go wrong. While we wait for the final outcome, our fingernails digging into the arms of our chairs, we might as well discuss what's in the bill and what we should think about it. To do that, I've brought back two of the earliest and most popular guests on Volts, Jesse Jenkins, Princeton professor and energy modeler, and Leah Stokes, professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara. I'm excited to talk to them about what's in the bill, what's been taken out, what we should be worried about and not worried about, and what they think of the bill's chance of passage. So... Without any further ado, Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes, welcome back to Volts. Thank you, David. Uh, this is be a lot more fun, I think, than the podcast we would have recorded a couple of weeks ago. So I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thanks for having us on, David. Yeah, you're the first, as far as I know, return guests to Volts. So you'll want to get that on your CV as soon as possible. I mean, I think that's what's going to put it over the top for Jesse getting <laughs> tenure right there. I think that's it. <laughs> Exactly. Multiple Volts appearances. I, I should just emphasize this up front. The bill is now out there. It has not passed. There is a lot to do between now and passage. It's got to uh, go through the amendment process. No one's sure what Kirsten Cinema thinks about it. No one's sure what the House quote-unquote moderates think about it. A lot of distance between us and the finish line. And we're all terrified about that. But nonetheless, let's get into the bill so we can at least know what we're terrified about. So let's start with you, Jesse, since you have in your hot little hands some fresh modeling runs. So let's start with just the kind of the big picture of if it passed as written, what effect would the IRA have on U.S. greenhouse gas emissions? A really big one. Our estimate from the Repeat Project, which is our uh, Princeton-led effort to 
uh, model the uh, federal energy policy as it is being proposed and enacted. So we've been kind of repeatedly assessing the bill from the introduction of the infrastructure and Build Back Better Acts last year through to today. And our estimate is that the Senate Inflation Reduction Act, as it's now called, uh, would cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions on the order of 900 million tons in 2030, basically doing about two-thirds of the remaining work that needs to be done to get us from the current policy trajectory down to the 50% reduction in emissions that we're aiming for by 2030. That's our nationally determined contribution, our pledge to the world to cut our greenhouse gas emissions down to half of peak levels. That's all greenhouse gas emissions, not just electricity, right? 50%. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's all greenhouse gas emissions, excluding land use changes. Um, We don't directly estimate the impact of the forest preservation, wildfire mitigation, and conservation measures in the bill. But our guess, uh, based on prior analysis, is that that's likely to deliver on the order of another roughly 100 million tons of carbon storage and sequestration in our national forests and agricultural lands. And so that's additional to the 900 million tons that we're looking at uh, in our analysis. That's all direct emissions from energy and industrial processes across the U.S. economy. That'll get us to about 38% below 2005 uh, levels, uh, plus or minus a couple percent for sure, and uncertainty. We don't want to be overly precise with the analysis, but that's in the ballpark of what other teams have been modeling the bill, including Rhodium Group and Energy Innovation, have estimated in their preliminary reports, which came out um, over the last few days as well. Uh, and around the 40% reduction that Senator Schumer's staff is uh, circulating is, you know, their estimate of the impact of the bill. So kind of all in the similar neighborhood there of, you know, roughly you know, 38 to 40% reduction in emissions, not quite to 50%, but uh, it keeps us in the climate fight and gives us a chance to close that gap with further action from states, local governments, uh, from corporate and institutional leaders, individual action. All of that just gets a lot cheaper and a lot easier and a lot more likely uh, with this bill passing and the federal government picking up a good chunk of the tab. Two quick follow-up questions on the modeling. One is, what, what I think everyone wants to know is, what is the difference between what the last sort of intact <laughs> Build Back Better version of this would have reduced versus this? In other words, how much less would it reduce greenhouse gas emissions than prior to Mansion sort of having its way with it? How, how big of a chunk did he take out? So our estimate was uh, that the House passed bill would have cut emissions by about 1.2 billion tons. And so we're at 900 million tons or thereabouts here. Uh, so it's about 75% of the emissions reduction work is retained from the House bill into this Senate bill. So that's a huge, huge portion of those emissions reductions. Uh, it's much closer to the House bill than it is to nothing, which is what we were staring at uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> nothing being the baseline here. Uh, well, the second question about modeling is, you know, I've had some people reach out to me and ask, even people in Congress, saying something along the lines of the following, which is, The first version of this bill that came out, they said it was going to reduce emissions 40% by 2030. And then the bill kept getting cut, but they kept saying it was going to reduce 40% by 2030. Mm -hmm. So is there, are there shenanigans with the baselines going on and sort of how are these baselines determined and how big are the differences in possible baselines, you know, based on um, what the economy does and et cetera, et cetera, versus the reductions in this bill. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, that was an incoherent. I'm happy to jump in on this one first. Please do. 
Um, that's not actually true. Schumer said that the previous version was going to do 45 percent. That was what mm. they had put out. So it is actually a little bit higher. And, you know, the modeling from Energy Innovation, of course, from Jesse's Repeat Project, from Rhodium, they're a little bit lower than that 40 percent. Maybe it's like 39 percent is what we're seeing. So there is actually a gap between what the Schumer team originally said the bill would do and what what this version will do. So I just think, you know, there is actually been there has been a downward reduction. And and I think Jesse's estimate is also, you know, points in the same direction. Yep, that's right. I think, you know, we basically we lost about one percentage point from the loss of this clean electricity performance program uh, from the original House bill to the House passed version. That would have cut emissions to 40 to 41 percent below 2005 levels in our analysis. And then now we've lost about three percentage points or two to three percentage points from there down to a 38% reduction below 2005 in the, the Senate Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, a little bit of erosion as we've gone along. But remember, this is how the legislative process works. And I have to give credit to, you know, Senator Schumer's team, to Senator Wyden's team on the Finance Committee for really being careful as they navigated this process and had to cut the budget back, which was really the main driver of the the cuts here was, mm-hmm. the, you know, the desire to deliver a top line uh, budget that contributes to deficit reduction, as Senator Manchin was was keen on. You know, Senator uh, Schumer and Senator Wyden's team and others have did a, did a very careful job and, you know, in some cases aided by the kinds of analysis that we were doing, uh, you know, the, our group and Rhodium and, and Energy Innovation and others to make sure that they kept the biggest bang for the buck, that they mm-hmm, were focused mm-hmm. on retaining the programs that deliver the greatest emissions reductions and get having the biggest impact possible. And, and I think you can see that borne out in the significant impact of the final bill that's showing up in all of our modeling. Yeah. And just to add to what Jesse said, you know, a lot of the changes were like shaving the amount of money in a given mm-hmm. program as opposed to cutting wholesale programs. There were, of course, some that fell out entirely, like the Civilian Climate Corps, e-bikes. They went away, sadly. Uh, I yeah, know. they saved like a buck fifty on that. So good work, everybody. I know. I'm a little sad about that one. But, you know, there were some full scale cuts, but a lot of the bill is still there, really. Like it's just a bit less money for each program. Yeah, it's been remarkable. Remarkable at every stage to see, you know, the original Build Back Better was this super elaborate (laughs) policy castle with a million (laughs) things in it. It's been pretty amazing to me, honestly, pretty remarkable to see as the rest of that castle falls apart, Mm -hmm. just how much the climate and energy part has more or less retained its integrity. It's Mm -hmm. kind of stayed almost the way it was originally built, even as everything else crashes down around it. It's almost like the climate movement is competent and powerful and the left climate movement knows what they're doing. And the people who say otherwise have no idea what they're talking about. Almost just, now, now, just we'll speculating. Get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think it's worth dwelling on that point, though, because, you know, you know, Leah, you're the political scientist, so I'll leave this to you to digest. But if you look at polling, you know, sort of the measures that were in the original Build Back Better Act, the kinds of, you know, immediate pocketbook issue benefits that that bill would have delivered, you know, child tax credit, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. free pre-K, um, you know, child care tax credits, all, all that kind of stuff. Huge, huge things that, you know, would have made a big impact on people's lives. And it's, it's a huge shame that that bill uh, is not what we're talking about, you know, moving through the Senate right now. But, you know, if you did polling on that, I imagine those are the measures that you probably would have leaned into in a campaign and, you know, in the midterms. Right. And that poll as the most popular measures in the bill, you know, in the broad general public, there's, you know, broad but shallow support for climate action across the general public. And the kinds of benefits that we're talking about in terms of avoided climate damages truly are, you know, far off in the future still. 
but there are a bunch of real near-term benefits that this bill delivers. And so I think the combination of a really robust effort by the climate movement to put this issue at the top of the policy agenda and keep it there throughout the sustained effort and you know the ability of a lot of advocates to really point at some of the tangible near-term economic benefits of this bill its benefits on you know energy costs reductions inflation reduction you know manufacturing jobs energy security those kinds of benefits are real mm-hmm. and i think are what ultimately allowed someone like senator manchin to not just embrace it but over the last week uh really go out and champion this bill in the public and yeah. and you know point to those kinds of issues gotta say build back better is dead he's <laughs> gotta keep saying that over and over again whatever you need to do man yeah i mean whatever else you can say about the climate movement uh, about their success with the public or trying to build any kind of public movement one thing that's very obvious is they have succeeded in putting this at the top of the national democratic party's agenda which is uh you know for those of us who have been toiling away in these ditches for years, a pretty remarkable thing in and of itself. The other thing that I think they've been able to do is basically make it clear that we cannot afford to fail, mm-hmm. right? And that is a sort of moral argument. That's a climate, you know, urgency argument. And it's what I think kept it together in the end is this, you know, Leah, you articulated this well in your New York Times op-ed, the costs of inaction are just too great. And people were unwilling to let that happen. And, you know, uh, since I do look at polling and I'm a political scientist, like we talked about, I just think that our conventional wisdom that people don't care and climate doesn't matter is just not true anymore. I've been working on this issue like the two of you for decades now, and I'm sure all of us see and feel how much more attention there is on the niche topics that we cover. Like we went through decades where nobody really cared what we did. Let's be real, people. I really think that the polling questions and the survey questions, the mechanisms we have to measure Mm -hmm. public concern about climate change are just kind of like ill-suited and kind of old. And those questions tend to be phrased in weird kind of anachronistic ways. I, I agree, Leah. I don't think we're very accurately measuring what's changed. Yeah. And I think that the folks who are at the front uh, edge of this, including, of course, Matt Mildenberger, my colleague at UC Santa Barbara and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and George Mason as well. Those are really the folks at the cutting edge of the climate polling stuff. They are seeing increases in concern, increases in worry. And when they do the maps, for example, where they downscale to districts and states, We see that, like, people want their government to act. That's Mm -hmm. really consistent. And I'll just anecdotally say I was watching Stephen Colbert's show, uh, the little opening he did last week about climate change. And um, it was really powerful because the audience, every time he said, like, we're going to get a climate bill, like, they lost it, man. They were just so excited. And so I think that people understand it. Of the many reasons I hope this passes, it'll just be fascinating from a political science point of view to see Mm -hmm. what effect it has. Does it give them the boost they want? Yep. All right. We're drifting a field, you guys. We're going back to the bill, back to some specifics <laughs> of the bill. So just for you, Leah, um, you know, the the clean energy payment program, I probably got the... Clean electricity performance program. Yeah. I don't even know what the point of trying to memorize it at this at this point is. But it's okay. That got killed a while back. Mm-hmm. So what is still there to help encourage utilities specifically and states to keep reducing electricity sector emissions. I I mean, presumably what's there now is not as powerful as the SEP would have been, but there's still some stuff in there, isn't there? 
Absolutely. You know, Jesse and I worked very actively on the Clean Electricity Performance Program. Obviously, we were very devastated when it fell out. But I think it just shows you that Jesse and I are still in this fight. We still want this bill to pass. It's not about a specific provision that somebody worked on or whatever. You know, I think Sunrise Movement is another great example of that. Their real signature thing, the Civilian Climate Corps, fell out, and yet they're still for the bill you know, we got to keep our eye on the prize here. So there's still tons of stuff to clean up the electricity sector. Remember that President Biden set a goal to hit 100% clean power by 2035. That was championed by, of course, Governor Inslee when he was running for president. And Evergreen Action, which I'm part of, has been really key to keeping that on the agenda. And President Biden says he wants to hit that. So how can we make progress towards 100% clean power by 2035? Well, of course, there are long-term tax credit extensions. These are the bread and butter policies that we've used for years to deploy wind and solar. There were some tweaks that we wanted to make with them that didn't happen and others that actually did. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. And overall, I think it's pretty positive. For example, there will be direct pay, meaning a kind of like a grant-like program where you don't have to have federal tax liability for municipal utilities and co-ops. In the previous version, if I recall correctly, you know, if we're going to talk about the tax credits now, let's talk about the tax credits. In the previous version, my impression was that they were all had been converted to direct pay, right? And just so yeah. listeners know, that means instead of having to, you know, invest enough to have some tax liability from which you can deduct these things, mm-hmm. it's just they give you money. Yeah. So you don't have to be particularly big. You don't have to be... Um, it's a way of broadening. So everything used to be direct pay. Not quite everything, but a lot of stuff, yes. I right. And my impression that Manchin was extremely leery about direct pay, but mm-hmm. then some people came in and persuaded him to have a little bit. So <laughs> um, A, how did that shake out? What is still direct pay and what isn't? And B, how big of a deal do you think that is? Well, you know, municipal utilities and rural electric co-ops, they're nonprofits. They don't really owe the federal government money, right? Because they're nonprofits. So they couldn't access these tax credits. And that's created some really big problems in the utility industry, which is that a lot of the clean electricity projects, wind, solar, et cetera, they're owned by third-party companies. They're not owned by utilities. And utilities really need to own this stuff in order to rate base it and profit off of it. So the good news is that co-ops and munis will still have that option. And I think there are some other tweaks that will make it easier even for private utilities to get access to capital, um, well, to get access to tax liability, I should say, Mm -hmm. to actually build these projects. So, you know, that's a really key thing. It's not the only thing. I want to just also point out that there's also $30 billion in additional investment to clean up the electricity sector. And that's for things Mm. like a program to help states move faster on clean electricity, Um, some programs to help retire dirty, polluting assets within the electricity system to move to cleaner power. Like there's really great stuff that's going to put us on the path to hitting 100% clean power by 2035. And let me jump in on the direct pay front, Dave, because there's an uh, important detail there on transferability. Yes, that's ex- literally exactly what I was going to ask about. <laughs> what the bleep is transferability <laughs> and is it a good substitute for direct pay? What does it mean and how big of a deal is it? Yeah, this is critical, absolutely critical. And again, you know, I, my commendations to the Senate Finance Committee and, and other people who worked out this deal 
there isn't direct pay for everything in this bill, but like, you know, as Leah said, nonprofit and and non-taxpaying entities do get direct pay access for the main tax credits. And that's, that's key. They generate about 10% of U.S. electricity right there. Mm. And they could increase that share a lot if they can now, you know, own and generate their own power rather than contract for it. But for others who do pay taxes and outside of the handful of credits that did retain direct pay, um, which we can talk about in a minute, Taxable entities now have the ability to transfer all or part in any given year of their tax credit to a third party, to another entity that has a business tax liability. Mm -hmm. They do not need to be uh, an investor or part of the project. And that is a really key change from the status quo, where the only way that folks have been able to monetize the value of these credits in the past is through what's known as tax equity finance. It's the ability to secure investment in the project itself from a bank or financial institution or somebody else with a lot of tax appetite. They invest directly as equity partners in the project. And then in exchange, they effectively get the tax credits to offset their income taxes. Mm. And they've been taking a lot of the value in doing that, right, Jesse? About 30% of the value. (laughs) Yeah, they've been taking a substantial uh, chunk of that value. And so instead of that value going to clean energy projects, it's going to Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and JP Morgan Chase, our our favorite friends over there on, on Wall Street. And, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20, 25% of that value may be going to those tax equity partners. So that's just bad public policy. It's fiscally irresponsible. It delivers a lot less benefit than uh, it could with direct pay. Now, transferability is somewhere in between because you still need to transfer your uh, tax credit to another, you know, entity with tax liability, but it's now much easier to do that. And that opens up the market to anybody with corporate tax liability instead of somebody who wants to go through all the due diligence and complicated deal structuring and everything that's required to enter into a tax equity deal with a wind or solar project or other clean energy project. So now what we're likely to see is a much more liquid market for basically transferring or selling these credits to other businesses with tax appetite. The haircut or, you know, transaction cost of that's likely to be a lot lower, right. you know, maybe in the 3% range once things get really off the ground, maybe 10% initially. We took a very conservative approach in our modeling and assumed maybe 5% transaction cost and 5% profit margin for the transfer entity because, you know, you don't want to pay $100 million for $100 million in credits, like, you don't mm-hmm. get anything out of that. So, you know, they maybe will pay $95 million for $100 million in credits. But it's going to lead to a lot easier time monetizing those credits. And importantly, just as importantly as that, the lower transaction costs, it also removes the total cap on the volume of tax equity available. And this was going to be the real killer Mm. if direct pay was entirely removed because there's just not enough tax appetite in those big banks and others that are willing to engage in tax equity deals to monetize all the credits in the bill. So this was really key. The transferability requirement uh, or ability uh, for the main tax credits is, is going to make sure that their full value can be captured um, and that they're not artificially capped by you know the willingness of tax equity partners to get involved in these projects. So of all the things I'm stressed about, I'm going to take the loss of direct pay <laughs> off, off, the my, stress off list. my list. <laughs> it sounds like things are going to work out uh, pretty well for those tax credits. And just to emphasize reemphasize something you said earlier, Lee. It's funny, you know, climate policy discussions are constantly going back and forth about, you know, carbon tax versus this versus that. What's the right mechanism? But really, if you look at performance, it's just these tax credits chugging along in the background Mm -hmm. that have always basically been the U.S.'s biggest 
clean energy policy and most efficacious clean energy policy. They're not that sexy. They don't get celebrated that much, but they're really the workhorses and they are getting sort of expanded and extended in here. So absolutely, that alone is a very big deal. It's worth emphasizing or dwelling on the fact that we have never had, you know, 10 years of consistent federal energy policy (laughs) and support for these kinds of things. So beyond the fact that we are now going from no production tax credit for wind at the moment, right, it's fully expired, a 60%, you know, value for the investment tax credit, right? So it's, we lost 40% of that and it's supposed to go away uh, next year, I believe. We're now going back to the full value of these credits, right? Um, it's about $26 a megawatt hour uh, for production tax credit in today's dollars and 30% investment tax credit. There's bonuses that can increase that further if you invest in energy communities and if you use domestic content. So those are you know, sort of industrial policy, just transition policies that further increase the value of those credits. And they're on the books for at least 10 years. That's so huge. Yeah. That is one of the hugest things in here because they've been, you know, like um, people listening to this podcast probably know they've been variable and unpredictable in the past. Mm-hmm. And you can look at wind development in the U.S. and it fluctuates with the credit. So just 10 years of predictability is such a long, open runway. It's so it's so nice. What about, Jesse, um, let's untangle the electric vehicle tax credits. So, uh, you know, this was one of the things that Manchin was sort of uh, vocally objecting to back when he was actually sharing what he wanted or didn't want out of the bill. Um, He objected to the provision that tied them to union-built EVs, got extra. He objected to that. I think that's gone, but he's put some new restrictions on it in terms of A, uh, means testing, and B, domestic content. So just talk us through how the EV tax credits shook out and once again like whether that should be on our stress list or not yeah so i'm not personally stressed about this one i actually think that this beyond you know being more challenging to comply with is actually really good industrial policy and can have strong benefits for the political durability of the energy transition which i'll come back to in a minute but what senator mansion essentially insisted on was that we were not going to send tax credits to, you know, Chinese battery manufacturers or, you know, critical minerals producers. You know, if we're going to do tax credits here, they were going to go to U.S. or North American, you know, trade partners or other U.S. trade partners. But just a note here, those don't really exist, (laughs) do they? I mean, uh, you don't want to send money to China, but like they're doing all the critical minerals and they're doing most of the batteries. For now. To what extent is there... Like, where are we now on the existence of a North American supply chain? So here's what the bill does. It it restores the $7,500 electric vehicle tax credit for personal vehicle sales. However, it is now broken into two pieces, each worth $3,750. And to qualify for each one, you have to meet certain content requirements. The first piece is about critical minerals. And so there's an increasing share of the value of critical minerals that have to be extracted or processed in a free trade agreement country, so a country that has a free trade deal with the U.S., or recycled in North America. And a percentage of the value of the battery components have to be manufactured or assembled in North America. And that starts out at 40% for minerals and 50% for the battery component value. It goes up eventually to 80% for minerals and 100% for 
for the batteries over time. Oh, wow. Um, it's a pretty aggressive ramp. And I think in the near term years, there may be some challenges complying with that. But I also think it's worth emphasizing, and this is something Manchin himself kept saying too, which is true, that the EV supply chain, you know, they're supply constrained at right now anyway. I was just going to mention, like, already we can't get as many EVs as we want. So yeah. if while we're waiting for that to ease, it does seem like a good time to spend our time building up a domestic supply chain. In the That's meantime. right. And in the meantime, it helps make those purchases more affordable for the models that do manage to comply with the standards and, and claim those credits. And remember that right now, you know, there's a cap on um, the number of vehicles that each manufacturer can sell before that 7,500 tax credit goes away. And, you know, Tesla's blow through that cap, Ford yeah. has gone through it, GM and, and Hyundai and Toyota are all nearing it. So, you know, compared to, again, nothing, which is where we were headed, this is, I think, a really helpful policy that will make EV purchasing more affordable for low and middle income families. And I think just as importantly, will provide a huge incentive to build out the US and North American supply chain. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. It seems like intuitively you need a big, like to get a domestic supply chain for a whole industry starting from almost nothing mm -hmm. just seems like you need a really big stick. And is this a big enough? You don't need just sticks. You also need carrots, right? A big carrot is what I meant. That's a better analogy. Keep in mind what we're talking about here is just one piece of the manufacturing investments in the bill. There's yep. about $60 billion of clean energy manufacturing uh, components to this bill. And that is actually what we were missing two weeks ago when we were living in the land of executive action only. Right. How exactly were we going to build the clean energy industry of the future here in the United States with good paying and hopefully union jobs without carrots. Like if we just took an executive action approach with sticks, we would not be doing that. We might still be deploying clean technology, but it wouldn't be made here. And it's really important to be building those industries, not just from like a jobs and economic perspective, but also from a political perspective. Because if we want to win next time and we want to win more easily and we want to flip some Republicans to start actually caring about the climate crisis, we need to have employers in all the states working on the clean energy industries of the future, employing people. Do we have a good sense of where an EV supply chain kind of would be located in the U.S. once it starts getting built? Or is this, I mean, do we know where that stuff will go? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing those investments uh, announcements all the time, um, mm -hmm. you know, already from from all the major automakers and, you know, battery manufacturers. And basically, it's, you know, mirroring where the current um, automotive industry is mostly concentrated. And that's in the, you know, in Michigan and the Great Lakes region and in the southeast. But there are some others, you know, there's uh, Rivian opening up in Georgia. Um, you've got uh, manufacturing moving to Texas for Tesla, I believe. So, you know, there is a quite a range of places. And, you know, when you change the technology base, you can also change the supply chain up. So I imagine it will shift a bit from where things are historically. But a lot of this is going to go into the same regions right now that are, you know, producing the bulk of the vehicles um, and components for those vehicles yes. in the industry today. Red and purple states, mostly, as Leah notes. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be other manufacturing, too, right? Like, we're not just talking about EVs. This yeah. bill has manufacturing incentives for solar, for batteries, which, of course, goes into cars, but also for other things like the grid. We've got, of course, heat pumps through the Defense Production Act, Ooh. my personal favorite. Um, <laughs> I got to be honest, I missed a lot of the manufacturing money when the bill was being negotiated because it wasn't where I was focusing my time and attention. And I would sometimes talk to colleagues, you know, in Schumer's office or the White House, and they'd be like, 
like, Leah, there's a lot of money for manufacturing because I was focused on heat pumps and there was mm. not money for heat pump manufacturing. They were like, that's the one thing we don't have money for. You need to chill. <laughs> and anyway, now there is money for heat pump manufacturing. Not and a ton. Thank you for your service. Some. So, you know, <laughs> there's an enormous amount here to build the industries that we need. And, I, and let's just also remember the solar commerce issue that we just dealt with this spring, right? Right. This was this whole trade thing where one company in California said, hey, why are you importing solar panels? We mm -hmm. should be doing them here in the United States. There are these companies that are circumventing the tariffs with China and the whole industry basically shut down. And thankfully, President Biden, people might forget, but he kind of already declared a climate emergency, just a little one, <laughs> so, that, so that he could invoke the Tariff Act and yep. say no new tariffs for two years. And that was critical to, you know, reopen the imports of solar. But some of the domestic companies, which, by the way, that's a very small part of the solar industry, but still, they were upset. They're like, why did you do that? Well, this is the answer, right? If we really want to build the domestic industries here in the United States, we can't really do that with regulation. We've got to do it with investments. And that is what is going to be so transformative alongside many other things with this bill. A few billions will make any industry feel better about, uh, <laughs> about tariff policy. Yeah, and Jesse's so right when he was saying that there's been investments. I saw recently data, there's been $180 billion in clean vehicle manufacturing invested in the last few years, right? Companies yeah, are going to match this money. It's not just, you know, the government acting. When we invest, companies invest too. Yeah, you know, we, we're all unfortunately old enough and have the scars to remember uh, <laughs> the failure of our last federal effort to pass climate policy in 2009. And, you know, to their credit, there I'm was... I'm still young, Jesse. Don't be saying like that. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't lump Leah in with us. We, we were babies then, fortunately. So um, <laughs> there, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric at that time about green jobs, right, and about the economic benefits of, of that policy. But, you know, in 2009, the policy was mostly sticks and not a lot of carrots. It was yeah. a, you know, carbon pricing bill to cap emissions and price CO2. And so, you know, the assumption was that would drive some investment in clean jobs. And, you know, that was what the rhetoric was centered around. Well, this bill actually is focused on making sure those good clean energy jobs deliver for real, mm -hmm. <laughs> providing real tangible, you know, economic benefits for communities all over the country. And it does that in a ton of different ways. So, you know, we've talked about the EV domestic requirements. There's also this bonus in the solar and wind and clean electricity tax credit mm -hmm. for using domestic content. Um, it goes up by 10 percentage points for the ITC. So you can get a 40% investment tax credit if you mm. use uh, basically all the steel and uh, aluminum concrete comes from the U.S. and the rest of the manufactured content is majority produced in the U.S. That is enough in our estimates. Um, uh, Aaron Mayfield at Dartmouth University and myself put together a, a paper last year looking at the extra cost of producing uh, solar and wind in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we found that that was really quite a small incremental cost, you know, a couple percentage points increase in the final cost of uh, installed wind or solar projects. And so that 10% credit is enough to cover that gap. But that's not all. We're not just, again, doing it on the demand pull side. We're also providing money on the supply side with a new advanced uh, manufacturing tax credit which was championed by uh, John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnack from Georgia, originally around solar component manufacturing. Mm -hmm. But it's now also includes wind component manufacturing, mm. uh, offshore wind ships that we need to build out to build out the offshore wind industry. Um, these you know, special uh, ships, the huge cranes that can go out at sea and, and install the giant turbines. 
And uh, what was added in the Senate version, again, you know, in negotiations with Senator Manchin, are production tax credits for the uh, supply and processing of critical minerals. So there's a huge list of the periodic table that qualifies Mm -hmm. for a 10% production tax credit on the manufacturing and processing side. And for lithium ion or other battery cells, modules, and electrode active materials, that's the minerals that go into the electrodes in, um, in the battery, right. that's a pretty hefty credit too. It's worth about 30% of the cost of a cell or module, battery cell or pack, I should say. And again, about 10% of the value of the minerals. So, you know, we're, we're throwing real money at this. And I think it's going to be one of the things that we look back in 10 years Mm -hmm. and beyond celebrating the emissions reductions progress that's been made. I think we're really going to recognize this bill as totally changing the direction for the economy and for our clean energy transition. And I think for the politics of sustaining that transition over time. Yeah, I said uh, exactly that on PBS a couple of days ago, like this is the right way to think about this is mostly as an industrial policy bill that will also <laughs> reduce emissions, right? I mean, the, the big moves in here are industrial policy. Let me ask a political question about those things before we move on. we got lots to cover. Um, will those investments, all the many range of investments in manufacturing, domestic manufacturing that you're talking about, hit the streets, <laughs> as they say, quickly enough to make a material difference in the 2024 election? So what's the timeline on these? Well, there's lots of different parts to the bill, right? And it's possible that other things are going to hit faster. Like we haven't talked about the consumer facing tax credits. That's something that I actually worked a lot on. So there's a new tax credit to help people get a heat pump, for example, to help upgrade their breaker boxes if they want to put in EV charging and they need a higher panel at their house. Um, You know, those are things that our everyday Americans are going to be able to access. And then there's a whole other program as well that mirrors that for low and moderate income folks that's a grant or rebate program it doesn't require federal tax liability so those might be some of the things that really matter but and those are immediate more or less like those are things they start next year yes Um, and as jesse was talking about offshore wind you know that is an industry that is pretty likely to be unionized and that's really exciting to have you know higher union density in the clean energy economy because that's something we've struggled with we've had really higher union density in fossil fuels and dirty energy than in clean and that's made it harder to have the unions kind of come along with the clean energy investments we need and with the sort of climate action. So if we can get, for example, offshore wind to be a unionized industry and made in America, that will be huge in terms of changing some of the political dynamics going forward. Yeah, we didn't talk about prevailing wage. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Every tax credit is tied to prevailing wage now. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, this I just want to insert in here. um, I'm not sure if that stuff was born here in Washington state, but Washington state passed some great climate legislation a couple of years ago, which Mm -hmm. really pioneered this idea of tying the tax credits to A, domestic content and B, prevailing wage or union labor. It seems like that's an idea that made it to this bill straight from the Washington bill. So I just get a little hometown pride there. Yep. Yeah. Credit to Evergreen and to the Blue Green Alliance and to others in labor unions for pushing these kinds of policies over the finish line or close to the finish line, I should say. But yeah, the consumer stuff is fast, but how fast is the manufacturing stuff? Like, is it fast enough that we'll see substantial numbers of jobs and stuff soon? Or is this just a 10 year thing we should relax about? 
<laughs> well, look, we're talking about a transition that's already underway, mm-hmm. right? And we're talking about accelerating that transition. So, you know, as we talked about, there's over $100 billion of investment going into clean vehicles manufacturing. 180. It's amazing. Yeah, 180. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, there are jobs and factories and ribbon cuttings all over the country that are part of this transition that will be accelerated by the bill. So I think that, you know, you, you're not likely to be able to say 2024 is going to see a huge surge of increased investment from the bill, although it will be higher than it would otherwise. But you can, you know, as a politician, I think pretty credibly and easily point to the kinds of jobs that are materializing in this transition and rally around a bill that is going to accelerate that and to bring it home in the form of domestic manufacturing, of investment in energy communities, of, you know, prevailing wage, good paying jobs all over the country. And, you know, I I think that's how this bill is going to manifest in the near term. And I do think in the longer term, it really is going to deliver real constituencies that are going to see their economic future and their Mm -hmm. economic prospects in the continuation of that transition, which is really key for the, you know, sustaining and accelerating our progress over time. Yeah, it's an an inflection point. This is a real inflection point. I mean, this could really change everything. I mean that. You mentioned briefly, but let's just wrap it up a little bit. There's all these ways of reaching consumers, basically, which, you know, when when I hear that, I hear reaching voters, but also it matters (laughs) on the substance. So, you know, the EV tax credits, I think, are the big sort of headline that helps ordinary people say, oh, like this bill would affect me, like somehow my life would change because of this bill. But there's a bunch of stuff like that in there. So let's just let's do a quick turn through all the many ways that consumers are going to be able to access some of this money. Well, here I've got to give a shout out to Rewiring America, um, which I also work with, and that we worked pretty tirelessly to try to get a bunch of these things across the finish line. So, yeah, just really grateful for their leadership on this one. So there is, of course, the EV tax credit. That's really important. And keep in mind that it costs about a dollar a gallon to run an EV compared to like four or five, six dollars a gallon to run a gas powered car. So it's going to be really big if people can get an EV. Uh, In addition, you know, people can get solar panels. There's a 25D is what that's called. Um, That's a tax credit. And they tried to get that to be direct pay, but tragically that didn't happen. But still, (laughs) we're going to have solar panels. And there's also a bunch of solar panel stuff in the Green Bank, which could, uh, what's called the Clean Energy Accelerator. Mm -hmm. That's a $27 billion program that's going to help deploy projects in communities. That could be more consumer facing than we might think because it could help for Mm. maybe, example, do like community solar. So there's a bunch of ways that solar is incentivized here. Um, Then my personal favorite and the stuff I spent a lot of time on was heat pumps. Yeah, heat pumps. Heat pumps, which I was just (laughs) talking to someone. We should call them cool heat pumps because they cool and they heat and they're cool. Um, So this is an amazing technology that probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with. They can both heat and cool your home efficiently without using fossil fuels. And that's great for your health, of course, but it's also great for the planet and it helps you save money. So there is both a low-income program that Senator Heinrich championed. Uh, It was originally called Ziha. Now it's called Hira, but who cares? (laughs) Basically what it is, it's for low- and moderate-income people to get access to, um, you know, heat pumps, heat pump hot water heaters, even an induction stove. And it will cover a huge amount of the technology. So, you know, it's up to $8,000 actually for a heat pump. And there's $4.5 billion for this program. I think we're going to run through that money relatively quickly. We're going to have to get more for that Mm -hmm. program. I think it's going to be really, really popular. 
And then for the wealthier Americans who don't really need a rebate because they owe the federal government taxes each year, there is something called 25C, which is um, a tax credit for now. It's going to be for heat pumps, heat pump up water heaters and breaker boxes. And it's going to pay for up to 30 percent of a heat pump. Um, That's really amazing. It's super exciting. It's going to make it way more affordable for people to get heat pumps. And hopefully we'll start seeing again uh, heat pump manufacturers move to the United States and start making this stuff here, which is something that Rewiring America has been working an enormous amount on. And to just, you know, give the summary here, if an American household adopts the technologies that this bill is going to make more affordable, so we're talking about getting an EV, putting solar on your roof, getting a heat pump, getting a heat pump hot water heater, etc., you can save $1,800 a year on your energy bills going forward, and that will be every single year. And of course, there are places where people heat their homes on oil and delivered fuels like propane. It's really expensive if you're living in Maine or the Northeast or the Midwest right now with the oil prices where they are. If those households take advantage of these tax credits, we're talking about like $3,000 or more a year in savings. And that's a very big deal. Um, uh, uh, Two notes on this. It's a big deal for anybody, but it's a bigger deal for low-income people who Mm -hmm. spend a larger portion of their income, legendarily, on energy. But also, and this is just a note I'm not sure everyone uh, fully appreciates that I always try to emphasize, which is the price of oil and natural gas and gasoline are constantly fluctuating completely outside our control, Mm -hmm. right? And the price of electricity tends to be stable over time. So it's not just lower costs for low-income people. It's just more predictable, That's right. steady costs, which people really underestimate what a big deal that is. Just being able to predict month to month, year to year, what the cost will be and not being you know, on the sort of ass end of these global markets where yeah. like gasoline can go up to $5 a gallon. And you're like, well, there's, it's completely out of your control. So electrification is a beautiful thing. I totally agree. And that's something that Rewiring America talks about all the time, that volatility issue. And I'll just say, too, when we call it the Inflation Reduction Act, 41 percent of inflation is being driven by fossil fuels directly, to say nothing of the indirect ways fossil fuels are driving up goods and services, to say nothing of the climate chaos and all these impacts from weather and how much that's driving up inflation, too. Fossil fuels is really at the heart of this inflation crisis, and getting people off fossil fuels is really going to help them save money. Turning to something I wanted to get to a little earlier, but let's tackle it now. Jesse, you can start. Um, You know, I think everybody intuitively expects if Manchin gets a hold of this bill and sends it back, there's going to be a bunch of fossil fuel stuff in it. And and I think there's a lot of uh, worry out there about this. So first, let's start specifically. There's this provision now, which in addition to being sort of irksome, it's also just bizarre as policy. It's never, it's not anything I've ever heard of before, but there's this provision now that basically ties, it says, if you're going to lease federal land for solar and wind, you also have to, at the same time, lease X amount of land for oil and gas development. So just explain what that is. Where the hell did that come from? Have you ever heard of anything like that before? And B, again, to return to our theme, how worried we should be about it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this came directly from, you know, Senator Manchin's demands and concern that the bill, you know, in a moment when, again, you know, oil and gas prices are driving up uh, consumer costs and, you know, we're going to Saudi Arabia to beg them to produce more Mm -hmm. oil. You know, he he thought it was ludicrous that we would not be producing more oil in the United States. So, you know, take that however you'd like to take that. That's his (laughs) point of view. And this bill, um, you know, had to have something in there that he could point to to say this was going to support all American energy production, not just, you know, renewables. Yeah, I mean, I can even see mandating oil and gas leasing, but to tie the amounts together, like what would... Well, so it does both, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean, or whatever, however you want to take it. I'll try not to be too value-laden. It does two things. There's two provisions. These are the sort of so-called poison pills, depending on how you're, you know, looking at it that, that he added in. One is that it does require um, five different lease areas that were previously offered and withdrawn due to environmental concern that those are reinstated and that basically the National Environmental Policy Act review is approved. Mm. So that is, you know, basically saying, look, there's these five lease sales that all are going to move forward now. And and that, of course, you know, has folks who in those communities and environmental groups have been fighting those leases for years, yeah. furious about that, right? Overturning the, the legal process and putting those back into play. And the measure that you mentioned is basically designed to tie the president's hands and say, look, if you want to develop renewable energy on public lands or waters, you cannot ban the lease of fossil fuels on federal lands and waters. So it's sort of trying to codify an all of the above approach to yeah. federal lands and waters that reflects Senator Manchin's priority and perspective. Now, I should say it also reflects the business as usual course, at least for the near term, because the federal government is leasing new oil and gas leases now after President Biden you know, paused those leases at the beginning of his presidency. The courts overruled that effort and the Secretary of Interior is issuing new leases and, you know, there is nothing, of course, to bind a future Republican president, yeah. uh, you know, against offering these leases as well. It's too bad that the program isn't reciprocal, that it doesn't say if you want to do right. oil leases, you also have to do wind and solar. That would have been good. That would be uh, really a chef's kiss. Like, oh, yeah. you want more oil um, and gas leasing? Have some solar, buddy. But there, you know, there are ways that presidents who um, want to can finesse and manage this. Um, again, like your perspective on this is going to vary tremendously depending on how your stakes in the issue, right? If you live, right. you know, near one of these lease areas, then you're going to have a very different perspective than, you know, I might have or others, you know, might have on it. You know, if we're just looking at the CO2 emissions, this really is not a killer. You know, again, how much of this is additional versus a business as usual is hard to parse out, but it's certainly not all additional any production resulting from additional leasing on federal lands isn't leading one for one to additional consumption, mm-hmm. right? It's displacing production on non-federal lands and on overseas and, you know, in other parts of the world in the oil and gas market. And so our estimate is that for domestic emissions, I think this aligns with energy innovations as well. This is no more than 50 million tons of emissions per year in 2030. It's, you know, probably less than that. How confident are you in that number? Because I've heard, you know, like people who are exercised about this poison pill also tend to say, you know, these models tend to overestimate or underestimate sort of the mid and long term effects of leasing. How confident are we that we know the carbon impact of leasing policy? I think we know the general magnitude of it. I mean, I, again, no one can predict the future with with accuracy. And, and it is true that the leasing impacts uh, are most 
you know, prevalent in the longer term because, you know, any lease offering next year takes some time to develop and then, you know, some time to come online. So, you know, there might be a slightly larger impact in 2035. But I think we have to keep in mind the scale of this. So we're talking about 900 million tons of emissions reductions from the bill overall. And Mm -hmm. we're talking about somewhere on the order of 50 million tons that this provision will cost us. So, you know, maybe it's 5% of the impact of the entire bill. Right. Um, And so that sucks, (laughs) right? (laughs) But that is certainly not uh, a reason to be concerned about the overall emissions impact of this legislation. And if you want to be somewhat cynical about it, if you need something for Manchin to have to wave around to show that he got his pound of flesh, a relatively small impact change like this, you know, is better than some other alternatives you could think of. Well, and I also did a bunch of digging in on this question because, as Jesse said, and I agree, it's not like this is what we would have written. It's not a good provision. It's not good for the communities who live by these places. It's not good for the planet. Like It's, it's just bad. weird and dumb and arbitrary yeah, policy. We like I keep saying, like, tying the two, the two are not <laughs> yes. related. Like, why on earth would you tie the amounts together yes. to one another? But, it's bad. But, whatever. but putting that aside, let's we have to really contextualize it because – You know, a lot of the movement has been built around supply side fights, meaning stopping fossil fuel development. And Mm -hmm. that's valuable and it's been powerful. But there is another theory of change here or a complementary one, which is crushing demand for fossil fuels. And how do we do that? We get people in EVs. We get them heat Mm -hmm. pumps. Right. We build solar manufacturing here and we put solar on all the roofs. Right. That is what this bill is going to do. And that's going to crush demand. And not only does that matter for the United States, when we deploy these clean energy technologies here at scale, we're going to reduce the costs. That doesn't just matter for the U.S. It's going to spill across borders. It's going to reduce the costs everywhere around the world. So we're trying to go to the same place. And, you know, we shouldn't underestimate, you know, the costs for frontline communities. And, you know, it's really not good. It's bad. But we have to get to the same place, you know. And and I I do think if I were environmental justice, earth justice, or I were a, you know, a a climate justice frontline community, I think I'd be most pissed about the overriding of the previous lease withdrawals and the fact that these, Mm -hmm. you know, five specific leases are, are moving forward. That's just not good due process, right? That's not how it should work. If, you know, the legislature coming in and saying, no, these specific ones, they're they're moving, you know, the other leases should go through due process. Right. And so we have mm-hmm. all the same tools we have um, to try to protect communities from the impacts of any potential development on these leases. Mm-hmm. And again, the requirements are to offer lease acreage, not necessarily for those leases to be developed. And again, we're going to try to crush this on the demand side so that if, you know, we already have oil and gas companies saying that they're expecting peak demand for oil mm-hmm. in the not so distant future, right? On the, yeah. you know, the neighborhood of 2030. This is going to accelerate that effort tremendously. What Europe is doing to get away from Russian fossil fuels now is going to accelerate that transition. Mm-hmm. So I do think we can win here and we can avoid this leading to a large amount of new, you know, oil production on net. Um, or gas production on net. And I do think it's important to remember the, you know, look around at the politics of the moment today with gas prices soaring. Yeah. You know, 
President Biden running around to, you know, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, <laughs> asking them, begging them to produce more oil, you know, releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You know, this is the kind of stuff that happens when energy prices spike. And they will spike if we try to drive this too much on the supply side by constraining oil and gas supply and not enough on the demand side, you know, driving demand reductions in oil and gas. And so this bill certainly is going to do a heck of a lot more on the demand side than on the supply side. But it, I think, is going to enable us to make that transition much faster. And it may actually even make those supply side efforts easier in the future mm -hmm. because there's going to be less demand for new oil and gas development once we do this. As Kingsmill Bond uh, shared with Volt's listeners uh, several months ago, there's a very, very, very big difference between an industry that is slowly growing and an industry that isn't growing anymore. Mm -hmm. Even if the number difference isn't that big, the business psychological, sociological difference yep. is huge. And look what's happening right now. A lot of these fossil fuel companies are making crazy money. And what are they doing with it? They're just giving it back to investors. Yes. They're doing massive dividends. What does that mean? It means they're not holding on to cash so that they can develop a bunch of new fossil fuel extraction sites. Yeah. They're saying, eh, I don't know how good our business is going. Let's give this back to our shareholders so that they hold on to our stock so our stock doesn't tank. They're not saying, you know what? I really want to build a new offshore platform in the Gulf, right? And just because leases are offered does not mean they are are purchased or even mm. developed. There is a long process between a lease being offered and it being developed. And we can do a lot of things along that way to stop these projects. So I did a little bit of the math and it turns out if there's 60 million that has to be offered offshore, according to this bill, Historically, the 10-year average between 2010 and 2019 was 80 million. So it's a little bit less than the historic average. And for onshore, you have to offer 2 million acres. And historically, that same period, it was 5 million that was offered. So again, it's lower. These are not good numbers, but they're lower than the 10-year average before the pandemic. And we've seen some folks who are real experts in this topic saying something like 1% to 3% of lease acreage that's offered is actually leased. And right. I don't think that even means it's developed. That just means it's least. A smaller percentage yet actually yes. actually developed. This seems like a good segue, uh, Leah, while you're going. This the oil and gas leasing part, I think, is fairly seen as kind of a blow to environmental justice communities, frontline communities. However, I personally have found it remarkable how much justice stuff was in the original bill and now have found it sort of doubly and triply remarkable how much of that stuff survived. Like mm -hmm. Manchin didn't seem to go after any of that at all. So just so that we don't leave this on a dark note, talk us through just a little bit about all uh, the stuff that's in there for environmental justice. And as far as I know, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but almost none of that was taken out. Like that portion looks to me more or less intact from the very original. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think you're right. There's about $60 billion of environmental justice investments in this package. And I have to say that the Equitable and Just National Climate Platform, which is sort of a coalition of EJ groups and Big Greens, you know, they worked really hard um, to make sure that EJ voices were represented in the process and they had their priorities. And um, a lot of those priorities are in there. I mean, like kudos, right? Like that's not... a uh traditionally been a big player, <laughs> I'm just sad to say, a big player in national climate discussions. And just in the last five years, they have organized and yep. put themselves in this process and achieved an amazing amount 
of I feel like this is an understated part of, of this bill. Like there's just an amazing amount of environmental justice stuff in there that seems bizarrely uncontroversial. Like no one's going after it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a big accomplishment. And I think it's being overshadowed by the dark, crappy stuff that was put in the bill. And I think people are saying, so. well, some people are saying, oh, movements weren't behind this or something like that. I don't agree with that at all. I was in coalitions with groups for the past 18 months. We met every week. We had open processes. We had environmental justice advocates participating. And the Equitable and Just National Climate Platform is a process to do that. I'm not saying everything is perfect or everything that happened, you know, everything that wanted to happen happen, but this is a lot better than we've done in the past. And $60 billion is a lot of money. So what are we talking about here? What were some of the priorities? Well, I just want to say Senator Markey has really been out in front working on these issues. There's $3 billion to clean up ports. Ports are a big source of pollution in communities of color. There's another $3 billion for um, community sort of block grants to help environmental justice communities set their own priorities about what they want to be doing. $3 billion for that is amazing. Like, that's a great, great win. And then, as we mentioned, there's something called the Clean Energy Accelerator. Again, Senator Markey worked on this. It's like a green bank. Yes. I'm so excited about this piece. I'm glad we're getting to it a little bit. Finally, the Green Bank. Um, (laughs) You know, there have been people working on this for a long time, and it's $27 billion. So that is pretty much intact. Amazing. A lot of money. But all meant to leverage private capital, right? It's going to leverage a lot more than that in private capital. Yes. And $15 billion of the 27, so more than half, about 55% is for disadvantaged communities, you know, environmental justice communities. Yeah, the lion's share of the accelerator is going towards, you know, environmental justice priorities. So it's really amazing to see these programs. For example, the one that I worked on that Senator Heinrich led about, uh, you know, these low and moderate income rebate programs to help folks get a heat pump, for example. You know, that's a really transformative program. There's four and a half billion dollars for that. So, you know, I would always love more money. I think we need to do lots. Uh, But this is actually really, really good news. And these were the priorities of many groups in the environmental justice movement. And I'm thrilled to see them in the text. And I'll also say, in addition, for all the flaws in the infrastructure bill, you know, there's a lot of fossil fuels Mm. in there. There are important environmental justice priorities in that bill, too. Like, for example, dealing with lead pipes, right? And also having, like, electric school buses and, you know... Mm, um, Another favorite. Yeah, there are lots of good things. And so, look, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I know there are some groups who are upset, and I get it. Like, this is not the bill that I would have written, and I worked on the bill very actively, and I worked to make it as good as possible, you know? And I worked with environmental justice groups, not all of them, not everyone, but I did. And I think a lot of people in the environmental movement did that in good faith and tried really hard. And, you know, we're dealing with the reality of 50 votes in the Senate, the last one of which is Senator Manchin, who we all know has made $5 million off of coal. So it's not the perfect solution here. But I feel like we got a lot of good stuff. And, you know, we can't miss that. You know, compare this to the environmental justice community's involvement in and results in the last time we did this in 2009 with the Waxman-Markey bill is just night and day. Like they were involved early on this time. They were at the table. They organized, uh, you know, they stood up for themselves incredibly well. And like, I just feel like it's under the radar that there are just huge justice pieces in the infrastructure bill, as you say, and in this piece 
that like, you know, like 40% of the money has to go to disadvantaged communities, that kind of thing, getting 50 votes in the Senate to me is just a little mind blowing. So again, it's all like what your baseline is. It's all what you're measuring against. But to me, just like relative to 10 years ago or even five years ago, clearly the EJ community has kind of secured itself a seat at this table. Like there's just, they're, they're, they're not getting overlooked anymore. They're a player. I don't think they got everything they wanted. And I mean, I didn't get everything I wanted. Big Greens didn't get everything we wanted. Like nobody did. But even Mansion. No, even Mansion. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, the, for example, the Justice 40 was about trying to get 40 percent of the investments. We're not quite at that number, but we still are pretty solid here. Then it became sort of 40 percent of the benefits, which was not what EJ groups wanted it to be. But I do think at the end of the day, this package is going to deliver a lot of good for low-income Americans, for communities of color, for frontline communities. There will be some bad. We've got to fight that bad as a community together and to try to make sure that we deliver, you know, justice, because that is what matters. And, um, you know, I know it's not perfect, but I think we've got to let great be good and not <laughs> let perfect be the enemy of the great, you know? Okay. Um, a couple more little details I want to hit. Um, we're over time, but I knew that would happen. Uh, <laughs> Jesse, maybe you could tackle this one. I did not see this methane fee coming. It wasn't in the previous version of the bill. Oh, no, it was. Oh, it was. It was. Yeah. So tell me about the history of the methane fee and how big of a deal is it? So the methane fee has been something that's been in the bill from the beginning um, in the House uh, Build Back Better Act. Um, the idea is to put a fee on upstream uh, emissions and of methane pollution in the oil and gas supply chain that's you know leaking from oil and gas wells, uh, from you know pipelines uh, and other stages along the way. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas in the short run, and so it's an important uh, one to cut as much as possible. And it's something that we can make very near-term, very economic progress on. Um, so it's a key piece of the puzzle to get us to our 2030 goal of you know cutting emissions to half of our peak levels. And what the methane fee does is it basically provides a financial penalty. It's our first foray into carbon pricing, yeah, really. carbon pricing. Um, <laughs> methane pricing, I guess. Um, <laughs> carbon equivalent pricing that would penalize um, producers of oil and gas that emit above a very low threshold level in a variety of different covered processes throughout the supply chain, you know, wells, compressor stations, pipelines, storage tanks, things like that. It also provides um, uh, $1.5 billion. There's a good chunk of money for grants to help companies actually uh, monitor uh, emissions and reduce emissions. And I should say that this works hand-in-hand uh, with a proposed EPA regulation on methane emissions that the Biden administration has put forward and is moving its way through the rulemaking process. The bill does say, and this is new in the in the Senate version, since that you know rule was introduced after the the House bill came out, it says that if a company complies with the EPA regulations, they're not subject to the methane fee. So mm. those will have to be calibrated to be roughly equivalent. But it basically says, look, meet the rules, we'll give you some money, and you don't have to pay anything. Don't meet the rules, you're going to start paying a bunch of money, and uh, that's going to provide a very strong incentive for the whole supply chain to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, uh, and methane pollution across the oil and gas supply chain. You know, that's another thing to keep in mind when we're talking about the emissions impacts of any you know federal leasing and things like that. That those emissions are going to go down with this measure. Right. The other thing to keep in mind is that there's also provision that raises the lease rates and rental rates for federal oil and gas production. 
that's good news for funding for for communities that are impacted by those uh, developments. But it also is um, a, a disincentive, a further disincentive for public development of you know federal lands that kind of cuts a, across or mitigates some of the impact of the leasing provisions. So um, yeah, all in all, there's a lot that targets the oil and gas sector here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that tries to you know encourage reductions in emissions. That um, requires them to pay a fair share for development of public resources. And we take that along with the, you know, with the lease provisions that were added to the bill as well. Yeah, the royalty rate increases are things that I think people are missing, right? On the one Mm. hand, more leasing, you have to do it, blah, 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 that's terrible. But hey, if you buy those leases, you need to pay more money to the federal government. That's going to make it less profitable. If the oil prices fall globally, which hopefully they will, I mean, who knows when, but when they do, that's going to eat into the profits. It's going to make it more risky for those Mm -hmm. developments. Like, there are things in this bill, like the methane fee, the royalty rate increases that are going in the other direction when it comes to direct fossil fuel development. I guess that's what struck me is not that it's new, but that Manchin didn't take it out. <laughs> what <laughs> kind of threw me for a loop there. Well, Senator Carper gets credit on that. You know, I think he worked a lot directly with Senator Manchin and really championed this for a long time. Yeah, I think it is worth noting, too, that there are a a range of views across the oil and gas industry about methane emissions. The majors are, you know, the big oil companies all see this as an area that they can tackle successfully. Um, And, you know, it's part of their ESG commitments, right? And so it's really the smaller oil and gas, you know, producers, the wildcatters and others that just want to get in and make a quick buck that are concerned about this. You know, I should say that the trade groups that represent developers overall have been opposed to it. So this is a win, you know, to beat back Mm. the fossil fuel industry on this. Uh, and get this uh, methane fee over the finish line. Like you, I was very concerned that it was going to fall out of the bill um, as it went through the process. And, and I think it's a big victory that it got uh, this far and, you know, it's nearing final passage. Yeah. And people who say there's no sticks in this bill are forgetting the methane fee. And they're also, of course, forgetting that we still have a president named President Biden who will be able to do regulations, which are sticks, if Executive and when this sticks. bill finally gets signed into law. Yes. We'll see. <laughs> That's a good segue to another point, though, I think I should squeeze in before the end here, which is that, you know, there was sort of a reaction and it's a logical one, you know, one that looked like the bill was going to fall apart. OK, fine. Forget it. We're just going to go to I think executive beast mode was the, the <laughs> quote from uh, it was a White House or, or shots or one of the climate hawks in the Senate. You know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, again, by making all of these clean energy and emissions reduction solutions cheaper. That actually makes it easier for a president and the uh, federal agencies to propose more aggressive regulations. Yes, this is an overlooked point. I tried to make this point, I think, on PBS in some context where <laughs> I really shouldn't have launched into it. It was but, too nuanced. Come on, that's yeah, pretty nerdy. Uh, yeah, Come I on, know, David. But this is for Volts listeners. <laughs> I mean, PBS is pretty far, but not that but far. But if you yeah. dump a bunch of money into carbon capture tax credits, which this bill does, you stand up the carbon capture industry, you help develop carbon capture technology, then voila, carbon capture becomes a viable <laughs> best emission reduction I know where scenario you're going with this, yes. for EPA's purpose. So EPA can then come and say, hey, look, we spent a bunch of money, we stood up CCS, and now it's available, so you got to use it. Yep. 
That's true for the fuel economy and tailpipe emission standards as well for light and medium and heavy duty vehicles, which the administration is working on now. All of those will be more ambitious with the passage of this bill, not less. And I think the, you know, the converse was actually true, that we weren't going to see executive beast mode. We we're going to see more cautious regulations because especially given the Supreme Court, you know, you can't propose a bill or I mean, a regulation that has a really narrow cost benefit analysis, you know, a lot of costs and, you know, burdensome compliance for the industry or you're going to get huge legal fights and you're going to likely wind up and lose at the Supreme Court. So the fact that we now have, you know, all of this, all these carrots in there as well makes it easier for the administration to pick up yes. a bigger stick That's right. and for people to not be so afraid of that stick because they can, exactly. they can, you know, clear the bar. This will not replace Joe Biden's executive actions. It will strengthen his hand mm-hmm. as he takes them. And just, I got to throw in, like, I get why, like, the Center for Biological Diversity has to put out these sort of, like, Joe Biden could do anything he wants, uh, <laughs> papers, but like, we all know Joe Biden. We know Joe Biden's administration. He's not going to go into beast mode. Like he was never going to go into beast mode. Beast mode is not in his repertoire. So like, I don't know. I'm going to jump in on that. I don't know if I agree, actually. You know, a lot of people have used the lack of maybe as much splashiness or aggression as a sign that they don't care. Or they're not going to do beast mode. Personally, I think it's been a sign that they really, really want to get this package over the finish line. They don't Mm -hmm. want to spook Joe Manchin. They know it's really hard to get him to stay in one direction for long. And, you know, the last thing we needed to do was use weaker tools at the expense of a really transformative package. So, you know, I know people who work in the White House. They are as aggressive on climate change as, you know, anybody. Honestly, I mean that. And, you know, I I think that we have really smart folks who really care and who've got lots of ideas and they've been waiting for the right time. And until last week, everybody was like, they're stupid. They messed it up, blah, blah, blah. Well, now maybe they're looking pretty smart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just think it's a little more complicated than they don't care or they're not going to do aggressive stuff. The summary of this point, I think, is the bill and the executive actions are complementary and mutually reinforcing, not in any way substitutes for one another. Yep. Okay, so I feel like we did a pretty good job here covering the substance of the bill, even though there's tons in there that we were not mentioned. But there's, you know, we got the tax credits for wind and solar and geothermal and hydrogen and everything else. Don't forget nuclear for all of our nuclear bro listeners. It's in there too. Big time. Otherwise, you're going to get emails that are like, why yes. didn't you yeah, talk don't, about don't nuclear? Don't put it in the comments. It's there. <laughs> so tax credits for nuclear in here. Let's just, woo. That's Y'all need to sit down. Just chill. <laughs> It's lots of stuff. I know. Please save my timeline. You know, there's uh, the the Green Bank. There's um, the consumer tax credits. And consumer rebates. Methane fee. uh, Rebates. Are there any substantive pieces, legislative pieces of this that we didn't cover? Anything else you want to like give a quick shout out to? Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk much about um, the the sort of things that maybe are, are some people are a little bit more ambivalent about, but I think are actually pretty critical. And that's that, you know, wind and solar and batteries and EVs are cheap today because mm. we invested in, you know, public resources in their early market deployment for a decade plus. We drove down the cost by 90% for batteries and solar by about two thirds for wind. And we need to do the same thing this decade for a range of technologies that we need to be ready for prime time in the 2030s and 2040s if we want to blow past that 50% reduction on our way to net zero. And so the bill also helps do that along with big investments and demonstrations in the infrastructure law. It provides the first early market policy support for clean hydrogen production, Mm -hmm. for carbon capture and storage, 
for advanced nuclear and uh, a range of other um, technologies like uh, sustainable aviation fuel that are in a more nascent stage today and are really not going to find a beachhead in the market without this kind of policy support. But with that wind at their backs, I think we can be confident that they, you know, that maybe not all of those shots on goal will succeed, but that enough of them will that we will have the sort of complete energy team uh, that we need to win the game in the 2030s and 2040s. And again, it's one of those, you know, pivotal moments that we're going to look back on, I think, and say, wow, you know, in 10 years, these industries that wouldn't have otherwise existed are now real primetime mature industries that can help drive down emissions. I look back at Obama's stimulus bill the amount it spent on energy, which at the time seemed huge, and we've been sort of <laughs> talking about as huge ever since, but is tiny relative to the amount of money we're talking about now. Four times bigger. I did the math. It's four times bigger. Like that bill, you know, not single-handedly, but but played a big role in exploding the U.S. solar and wind industries that basically sort of created those out of nothing with a much smaller amount of money. So just like you know, just like I'm just emphasizing what you're saying, 10 years from now, the amount of money we're talking about investing is going to have transformative effects. You can't predict them all, but like this is truly a transformative amount of investment. And we have, a, you know, a track record showing that these kind of investments can stand up industries and get them, you know, kind of on their own two feet. And I would be remiss, David, if we didn't talk about another Volt's favorite in this package, which is that there is $3 billion for USPS to purchase oh, zero right. emissions vehicles. Very Thank exciting. Thank you. Oh, my God. I can't believe we almost I almost did a whole podcast on this bill without, without, <laughs> without talking about your that. favorite pet project. Yeah, there's actually $9 billion total for the U.S. Uh, federal government to do procurement of clean energy technology. Yes, which is huge. That's also really important. You know, heat pumps clean cars, like solar panels, you name it. That's going to be great, too. There's a lot of amazing stuff in this bill. I'll just say, if folks want to see a pretty comprehensive explainer, they can go to evergreenaction.com, and there is a very long, but not as long as the bill explainer <laughs> that really breaks down lots and lots of programs. And, you know, see, we've been going on here for quite a long time. If you're still listening, gold star for you. Um, and we still have not touched on all the things that are in the bill. And that's what I mean. This is a vast forest of clean clean energy and climate investments. You know, there are some trees in the forest that are sick and diseased and not great, like the <laughs> leasing stuff, but they're just a tree. And there's a vast forest of lots of other things that are in the package. Hard to wrap your hand around, but my gosh, it's huge. Vast forest of clean energy spending, really comprehensive, really covers the waterfront, lots of stuff that you wouldn't obviously think of. Like clearly there's been lots of policy brains behind this, all in the context of a 50-vote Senate mm -hmm. majority, a president under siege by inflation, like just if this thing squeaks through in this environment, it will be a MFing miracle it will be. relative to what we th reasonably could have expected. And that's where I've got to put a plug in for call the number four climate.com. Call four number four climate.com. You can go there. There's a phone number. All you have to do is dial the number and it will patch you through directly to your senators and your representatives. It takes two minutes. And I would particularly say if you've got friends in Arizona and West Virginia, ask them <laughs> to go to call for climate.com today, tomorrow, the day after. You can even look in your phone for Arizona and West Virginia area codes in case you forget who your friends are. This was an idea from Sam Kalish at Rewiring America. <laughs> but really, it takes two minutes. These offices don't actually get a lot of phone calls. Your phone call matters. And we've got to get this bill over the finish line. That's something that all the listeners can do right now.
Okay. Is there anything else to say about the politics of this? Like, Jesse, I mean, the concrete politics of getting it passed. Like, no one really saw this coming. <laughs> so, no one, I mean, no one knows what the hell is going to happen. But do either of you have any sort of non-hand-wavy speculation about the prospects of this thing? What you think is going to happen next? Look, I think we're over the hardest part for sure, um, and that's convincing a very moderate senator from West Virginia, where Trump won by something like 60 points, <laughs> to embrace this bill and to go on TV and champion it oh <laughs> and God. to, you know, meet with Kristen Cinema this week and sell the bill to her. And, you know, so I think we are through the hardest part, but we are not done yet. And so the process from here is that you know, I think this is is happening today. The the parliamentarian has to review the bill right. to make sure that it meets all of the arcane, totally arbitrary rules of the U.S. <laughs> Senate uh, that allow them to pass only budget and spending bill and revenue bills. We're going to uh, see without... what color smoke comes out the parliamentarian's <laughs> yeah. window. I hope it's green. That that'd be good. For <laughs> yeah. The so the so the Republicans have been reviewing the text since it came out, and they're going to throw some challenges her way, and 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 you know Schumer's team are going to argue through it, and and uh, hopefully we'll find the results of that uh, in the next, uh, you know, 24 hours. Uh, then it's going to go to the floor for a series of amendments, you know, developed by the Republicans to be as politically uncomfortable as possible for yeah. Democrats to vote no on. They will all walk down there, you know, to the floor arm in arm and vote no on every single one for 12 hours or however long they allow. Um, and then hopefully this bill passes the Senate on Friday. Well, it might be Friday or Saturday, depending on how yep. long those votes go for. Yep. But we can promise listeners at least this is the last week of of hair loss and fingernail no, chewing. No, like, then there's the house, my dear. There's a second oh chamber. God, yeah. Did you forget about that one? Are they going to? Yeah, I mean, I'm a political scientist, so I just wanted to remind you that the Congress has two chambers. I just, you know, that's it's my expertise. We have a professor here, just yeah. here. Too many, too many chambers. I don't know why we need this many. Do do we anticipate? You know, there's been some discussion about whether this yeah. group of moderates in the House are going to kick up a fuss about the salt deduction or whatever. Yeah. Do we have any signals or any knowledge of whether that's going to happen? So you have a handful of of, of Democrats who are really going to torpedo the only chance at passing substantive Democratic policy uh. victories before a narrow midterm election over a tax cut that benefits upper middle class homeowners in a handful of states. I mean, I mean, they better as hell not. But I don't <laughs> think they're that insane. Look, I think we have to remember that we've got Nancy Pelosi here, okay? Yeah. This is someone who thing. has, yeah. <laughs> this is someone who has actually passed two climate bills. She passed Waxman Markey, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right, she passed right. the now dead Build Back Better. So <laughs> I have a lot of faith in her and her ability to deliver. I think that the Progressive Caucus, I'm feeling uh, pretty good about them. You know, they understand the stakes here and just yeah. how important this is. And I'm hopeful that those moderate Dems will just get in line and recognize that, like, this is the most important bill that they can pass. And, you know, fingers crossed that Nancy Pelosi just pulls another one out of the hat. Yeah. I mean, look, we all got to spend a week staring at the abyss of yep. utter defeat. <laughs> it was a dark right? abyss. And going through all of the stages of grief yeah. that we all went through. Racing. And we're not alone. It wasn't just climate advocates, right, that went through that. It was oh, no, everybody yeah. looking at the politics of a totally failed Democratic policy agenda <laughs> at the beginning of midterm campaign season. And I think that puts a lot of fear in a lot of people. And I think they're going to respect the fact that this is the shape of the bill and you cannot mess with it and it is going to pass as soon as possible. So 
I, I hope that that's the case, but I, I think that that, you know, our brief wandering through the wilderness there, yeah. um, I think has, is going to help everybody, yeah. uh, just buckle down and get this done so we can all move on to the next thing in our lives for God's sakes. Yes, please. Lord. Put the fear of God in everybody. Let us go. Cause Lord knows Jesse and I, and many other people, we've all had babies during this thing. We've barely uh, <laughs> taken any time off. I haven't gone on a maternity leave. You know, Jesse, poor guy tried to take a vacation. That was not allowed. I don't even know why he tried to do that. So, you know, it's just been endless and, you know, we're all exhausted as are everybody in Congress and the White House and everywhere else in the movement. And uh, my Lord, let let this be done, please. Yeah, pretty soon we're not going to have to care what Joe Manchin thinks. It's a blessed, <laughs> sweet, sweet heaven awaits us. But for this last week, as Leah says, call for climate.com. Yep. Like if you want to go pester your senators to not screw this up at the last minute. Uh, now's the time for the final mobilization. Yeah. Get this thing limped across the, f- the finish line. At the last conceivable minute. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's a miracle. And I think, you know, people need to remember the stakes here. We we saw what failure looked like in the past two weeks. It was devastating. I mean, I really did cry. I'm not. I mean, I I really held my children and I sobbed. It was terrifying <laughs> to think about what kind of planet we would be leaving ourselves, let alone our children, let alone our grandchildren. It was terrifying, and we can't forget that feeling. That's the stakes here, people. Failure is not an option. It's not a small thing. This is the difference between near total failure and something within striking distance of success. Yep. And I think it's worth remembering. I mean, it seems like a miracle, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came down to people, Yeah. right? People can make a difference here. People who refused to let it end that way, to say, nope, that's not how it's going to go down in history. And to get back at it and to put as much pressure as possible on Joe Manchin to get back to it. And ultimately that worked. And I I don't know that we all had much hope that it would, but we all knew you had to do everything you could and play it out to the last minute or you wouldn't be able to look at your grandkids or your kids and say, Mm -hmm. we did everything we could. And we did everything we could this time and we are all much better for it. So I think for anybody who's feeling defeated or who is um, feeling cynical about the ability of people to make a difference when they work hard at something, this is the antidote to that because countless people doubled down at the last minute and refused to let it go down as a loss and to bring it back from the edge of defeat and, and to get it across the finish line. So keep at it. If you're out there, as Leah said, keep at it. Keep putting the pressure on until this lands on the president's desk uh, and we can all celebrate a huge climate win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe I'll have you guys back on the podcast and we can just spend an hour going, ah, <laughs> or, <"Woo-hoo!" laughs> hey. That sounds like super great <laughs> audio experience. we just experience? have an hour-long dance party? It just, you know, Lulz House Beats. Lulz <laughs> <laughs> House Beats, oh my God. <laughs> okay, you guys, thank you uh, for coming back on. Thank you, obviously, for your years and years of labor. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we're on the verge. Hopefully. Got to knock on wood anytime you say that. That's yes, what my I'm mother says. I'm knocking on my desk. Everyone who's listening, <laughs> knock on something. And and call. Pick up a phone and call. Go yes. to callforclimate.com. <laughs> knock on your phones. All right. Thanks, you two, uh, so much. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volt subscriber. 
at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.